0: Ephesians chapter 1 verse 23 reads, Which is his body, the fullness of him fulfills all in all. You see, when you and I come to saving faith, or came to saving faith, we automatically became united with the body of Christ. And Paul uses this metaphor of the church as the body of Christ in verses 22 and 23. There's the universal church and the local church. The universal church consists of believers worldwide, all true believers. It has no geographical location. And then there is a church with a geographical location. It has GPS coordinates in there. Like for example, Family Heritage Church is a local church, the visible church, identified by a group of people meeting together in a place And we see that in the New Testament as well. You have the church at Thessalonica. You have the church at Ephesus. You have the church at Rome. You have the church at Galatia. Church at Philippi. Local churches. And here in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 23, Paul is stating that the universal church, or the larger body of Christ, we saw this last week, completes or complements Christ. The church is Christ's body. The book of Ephesians uses different terms to describe church. The synonyms used are saints, faithful in Christ Jesus, the ones who believe, his workmanship, the new man, fellow heirs, those in whom the Spirit of God dwells, children of light, Brethren, and those who love the Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. And as Paul uses these different terms for the church, he goes on to make this stunning statement here in verse 23, that as a church, we are the fullness of Christ. And as we saw last week, we could have two possible interpretations, depending on how you take the word fullness. Fullness. One interpretation would be that Jesus Christ is the fullness of the church. Just like you go on a fishing trip and you catch a large catch of fish and stuff it into your ice box and you're able to say that the fish has filled up the ice box. Like in the Old Testament, you have God filling up the temple with his glory. And in the same way, Christ dwells in the church. Christ being the fullness of the church. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that the church is the fullness of Christ. Or that the church complements Christ. Or that the church completes Christ. Meaning, as a body, the church, we become the fulfillment of the Son of God. As the bridegroom is incomplete without the bride, the Christ, who is the head of the church, is incomplete without his body. Which is the church. Now, as we said last week, Christ is 100% divine. He is fully God, he is self-sufficient in and of himself. He does not need anyone to complete him. He doesn't need anyone to complete his deity. He is God. He is 100% God. And this is why the apostle Paul could wrap up verse 23 with the words, All in all. Paul wanted his readers to know that Christ is sovereign and that he fills all things with the sovereignty. He rules all things. He fills the heavens and the earth. Christ commands all things and he will bring all things to its appointed end. So he is sovereign. And so because of this understanding, we can boldly say and lean towards a second interpretation and that is church complements Christ. Or that the church completes Christ as the body completes the head. Does that make sense? So, if the church completes Christ, then it is important how we represent the church to the world around us. Because the church is an advertisement of Christ to the world. The church is the tangible expression of Christ in this world. Christ took on human flesh. He lived among us. Became sin for us. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. Now as he went up to heaven, he did not take the church up to heaven. Christ left the church here on earth... To reveal Christ to the world until Christ returns. So the church is the tangible expression of Christ to the world. The world looks at the body of Christ and sees Christ personified through the body. So what we do and how we live mirrors the body of Christ. The world is able to look at us, the body of Christ, and see Christ in us. So, how do we live as a body? How how are we to live as a body? How are we to conduct ourselves as a body? And to this, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And he writes a letter to Timothy, letting him know how to conduct or behave themselves in the church of Christ. And so would you please turn with me to First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Let me read this for you as you turn there in your Bibles. It reads, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress and supporter of the truth. Paul is letting the church at Ephesus know how they are to conduct themselves. He lists three three phrases. He says, The household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that is descriptive of how we are to conduct ourselves in the body of Christ. So let's begin in verse 14. It says... I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. So that. Paul is writing that the underlying reason he's writing these things is in case he's not able to go up to Ephesus. The Ephesians would still be able to know what Paul wanted them to know. And what is it that Paul wants them to know? Paul wants them to know how they are to behave in Christ's body, which is the visible expression to the world of our Savior, who is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. So what is it that he wants the church of Ephesus to know through this epistle in 1 Timothy chapter 3? He says, that in verse 15 of chapter 3. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So let's pick up the phrase, how you ought to behave in the household of God. The phrase, of you ought to behave in the household of God, is in the present tense. Meaning, it's a continual exercise. Not just when you feel like doing it or when everything else is going well for you, Paul says that at all times, you ought to constantly, consistently have a pattern of life which is proper as a member of the household of God. So you ought to behave in a certain way. The word household there does not mean a building, but a family. It means an extended family of God. An extended family in which God is the head of the divine family, and we are His children. Now when we refer to the term family, we understand this is a unit. In which there's a father, mother, children, they live together, they care for one another, they trust one another, they look out for one another, they live for one another, they sacrifice for one another. When one is hurt, the family hurts. When one rejoices, the family rejoices. That's a family unit. And the family that Paul talks about here is the family belonging to the household of God. Meaning God is the perfect father. And we are his children. And as God's children, we are all brothers and sisters in the household of God. And Paul says that we are to conduct ourselves or behave ourselves in the household of God. We are to be consistent with who we are. So what are some ways we can behave in the household of God? What are some ways? And I put together couple of points for you. First one, love one another. Love one another. Loving our neighbor is second only to loving God. Loving our neighbor is a tangible expression of our love for God. You can love your neighbor only if you love God. Without a vertical relationship, you cannot, nada. You cannot have a horizontal relationship. It always begins there. Are we committed to loving one another in the household of God? Are we? Would you please turn with me to another letter written by our apostle Peter, found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And even as you turn there, let me read that for you. It says, Above all, keep loving one another. How? Earnestly. Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. So when Peter says says to love one another earnestly, he says we should strain ourselves like an athlete stretching and straining every muscle towards the end of the race. This means we ought to be stretching and straining in our love for one another. Why? Because the Lord's day is near. The Lord's coming is near. Folks, love is not some mushy feeling for one another. Love ya. And that's it now. It ought to be demonstrated through action. Love is an action verb. What are some practical ways you can love your brother or your sister? Well, you can show them your love by serving them no matter what. You put yourselves at their disposal. I'll say, but pastor, what do they take advantage of here? Well, why why not help people until you're taken advantage of? There is a principle that's found in Philippians chapter 2. You don't have to read there. You probably heard it and read it multiple times. We preach through Philippians in this church. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You know where I'm going with this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy, says Paul, by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord, in one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better or more significant than yourselves. And then he goes on to say, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he goes on to say, have this mind among you which is yours in Christ Jesus. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being in the likeness of men. Christ died for us. Was he taken advantage of? Yes. By whom? By us. How many times? All the time. But does he stop loving us? No. Please, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 6. And we'll come back to Timothy. You can put one of your fingers in first Timothy and turn to Luke. God's given you ten fingers to study the Bible. That's an old joke. But Luke chapter 6: 35 to 36. And as you turn there it says, "But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high, for he's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Does he say he's kind to the grateful and the good? He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, the Bible says, Jesus says, even as your father is merciful. Christ wants us to love our enemies expecting nothing in return because our heavenly father is merciful. All that I'm telling you to do here, folks. Forget your enemies. Look at the person sitting right next to you. Your fellow brother and your sister in this church. How much more should we love our fellow brothers and sisters in the household of God? So, which pattern do you want to follow? Do you want to love like Christ loved? Or do you want to do it like yourself? Or the way you love yourself? The second thing I want to let you know is the way you want to behave in the household of God. Yes, love one another, exhort one another. True biblical love is ready to forgive, ready to protect, ready to trust, ready to hope, ready to correct. First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 7 reads, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now many people read First Corinthians 13 7 and say, Love bears all things and assumes that if you love someone then you don't correct anyone. And they'll read Matthew chapter 7 and say, well, look at this passage. It says, judge not that you be not judged. So the Bible says we should not judge. Well, they have a wrong understanding of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. First of all, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 does not mean that you should not judge. It means you should not judge self-righteously or legalistically. Because right in that same chapter, in chapter 7, verses 16 through 20, we read that there is a righteous kind of judgment. Especially verse 20 of chapter 7 reads, you shall recognize them by their fruit. How do you recognize them by their fruit if you don't judge? So there is a righteous judgment. Remember Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13, exhort one another. Some version says, encourage one another. And people stop reading at that. Well, it doesn't stop there. Because Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13 continues to read, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That means you as a believer comes alongside another brother and you are encouraging them and exhorting them that they would not continue in the lifestyle of sin. You are supposed to exhort, edify, rebuke, motivate each other in our Christian walk. Biblically, if you love someone, you will correct when someone sins. That's a true expression of love. This is why Jesus gave us a command in Matthew chapter 18, where we are mandated to confront sin, exposing sin, rather than covering up sin. But how we do it is important. That's why Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 reads this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, he says, You who are spiritual should what? Restore him. How? In a spirit of gentleness. And he says, Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And when we confront sin or expose sin, we need to be certain, sure, it's a sin against God based on scriptures, not some personal convictions because that would be legalism. Therefore, confronting a person, we ought to be certain it's a sin against God. And that's the second point in terms of exhorting one another. As you behave yourself in the household of God, you love one another, you exhort one another. Third, be hospitable to one another. Love entails being hospitable. First Peter chapter four, verses eight and nine. That's where we were. And if you have one of your fingers on there, you can easily turn there. First Peter chapter four, verses eight and nine says above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why, since love covers a multitude of sins, and then he goes on to say, show hospitality to one another. How? Without grumbling. Without saying things under your breath. That's a characteristic of being hospitable. It's an essential requirement for an elder. An elder's home is to be a place that's willing to have people over. The word hospitable hospitable means a lover of strangers. In the early New Testament days, motels and hotels were not safe places. Traveling missionaries and evangelists often needed a place to stay. And the elders were commanded to be men who were hospitable. Men who would open their home to strangers. Are you hospitable? Do you invite people to your home? I know strangers can be dangerous these days. But what about people in your own church? Or is your home half limits for people? Biblical love consumes or occupies oneself with others. Love is not focused on pleasing yourself or your own self-interest, but is selfless and focused on serving the other person. By the way, if you are self-focused, we will not be hospitable to other people. Point number four, love one another, exhort one another. Be hospitable to one another, serve one another, serving one another. Go back to 1 Peter, please. That's another place where you'll see this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter is stating here that each one of us has received a gift. We are managers, are stewards of the resources God has given us. So we are to serve one another. Now, if you're a believer, none of you can ever say that you do not have a gift. If you're a believer, you have a gift. You can't say, I'm just going to sit tight and, and let someone else exercise that gift. Bible says we have received a gift and we ought to be using these gifts to serve one another. If it's a gift to speak, speak under divine inspiration. And then he goes on to say, if it's a gift to serve, you should serve by the strength that God provides. Are you serving in the church? We could be auditors. We have auditors in the college and schools. You're not supposed to do any homework, you just show up in class. One of the privileges I have as a seminary student, uh, I mean, a sem- student who wasn't seminary, is I can go anytime to my seminary and be there in any class and audit any class for free. Well, we have spiritual auditors as well. Spiritual auditors are people who come and audit the church and leave. The Bible says here we ought to be serving in the church. And by the way, when we think about serving, we have a problem with serving. We often prefer to work with people who are clones of us. Or maybe people who are probably subservient to us or willing to listen to us. I want us to look to First Peter four ten again. Please read First Peter chapter four verse ten. It says, "As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's." Speak to me. Varied grace. It's the Greek word poikilos, meaning multicolored, multifaceted, diversified. That means no two people will work the same way. We are unique in the way God's gifted us for service. This is God's design. There are no clones. So then how do we work together? How do we adapt to one another? Do we just work with people with whom we can get along? Or do we create a clone of ours in order to work in the church? Let's say for sake of an illustration. It doesn't happen in this church. Say we have a potluck at our church, hypothetically. No, we do have a potluck once a month. But say some church somewhere, we have a potluck. And two ladies are working side by side in the church kitchen. One is a clean freak. Everything has to be perfect and organized. She takes one utensil and puts it, cooks on it, and then puts it away clean. There's another lady on the contrary working next to her. She'll pull everything out. Every single utensil in the kitchen has to be on the counter. And by the time she's finished working, it's like a hurricane just hit the kitchen. How can these two women work together? Does it mean that they have to have the same style of serving in order to serve together? How do we serve with each other in order to serve the body of Christ? Or do we go up to the women's ministry leader and say, if so-and-so is serving in the kitchen, don't put me there with this person. I don't want to be in the kitchen anymore. What does 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 say? You probably know this. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love promotes and praises others. So yes... We have to serve alongside each other because God has designed us uniquely and we got to work with each other. So we have to love one another. We have to exhort one another. We have to be hospitable to one another. We have to serve one another. That's how you behave in the household of God. Is that clear? Let's move on to the next phrase. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. And could I say, First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15b. What is it? We are the living God's church. Literally, we are the living God's church. That's all it is. It says church of the living God, but in the Greek, it's we are the living God's church. Meaning you are identified by your roots to God. You belong to the living God. God is your heritage. He's the living God. In contrast to all the dead gods in the, in the city of Ephesus, Diana, Artemis, whoever it was, in contrast to all the dead things, God is the living God. And you are belonging to the living God. God is your father. Now maybe you take great pride in Ancestry.com. Maybe you trace your family roots. All the way to the 1700s and the 1800s. Forefathers, dead and gone. Maybe you're related to the Queen of Scots. Or King Ferdinand of Spain. If it's a so good for you. My heritage is found in the fact that God is my father. And he is my father. He is the living father. The father of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I belong to him. He is the living God. Not a dead God. A living God. It's a living organic unity. With living God as the head of the family. That's what Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 10 says. But the Lord is a true God. He is a living God. All others are dead idols. Next. In that same phrase. Paul goes on to say. The church of the living God. Do you see that? The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. Ek-kaleo. Called out community. Called out. From what? Well, to understand this, you would have to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We will be there next week. Ephesians chapter 2, a preview of that. Verses 1 and 2 and 3 says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is our past if we are not saved. Sorry. Sorry. This is our present, if we are not saved. This is our past, if we are saved. Folks, there are two kingdoms in this world. How many? Two, not three, five, six, seven, just two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of darkness is to belong to Satan. Satan is your father, you're a slave to him, you're enslaved to him, you love him, You, you do what he says, The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, you followed the course of this world in the sons of disobedience. You lived in the passions of the flesh. That's the sons of darkness. Well, you also have the kingdom of light. God is your father. You love God. You love holiness. You love purity. You want to worship Him. You want to glorify Him. You want to read God's word. You want to study God's word. You want to meditate on God's word. You come to church to fellowship with fellow believers. You sing out loudly because of the joy that's in your heart. You can't contain yourselves. Two kingdoms. God saved us. We were called out of that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the light. That's a kaleo church. Does that make sense? That's theology one on one. We've been called out of the sinful world to be a holy people. And as a called out people, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, our behavior and our conduct is to be consistent with our identity. We are called out of the sinful world to be a holy people. We are the sons of the living God. Since we are called out of this world, we are to live our lives reflecting what? Holiness and purity. We cannot be copycats of the world. We are not of the world. That's what the Bible says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. As someone said, the boat is in the water, but the water is not in the boat. If the water of the world is in your boat, it's bad news. You're drowning. You're drowning in this world, my friend. We need to look different in the way we dress. We need to look different in the way we act. We need to be different in the way we speak, in the way we think, in the way we aspire, in our ambitions, in our jobs, in, in everything, in the way we love our, our wives, and the, uh, the way you love your husbands, parents, and the way you raise your children. You ought to be different. What you do with your finances, it's different. You're no longer loving the world or the things of the world. You are heavenly citizens. You ought to be different from the world. Do you agree with me? Would you please turn with me? Man, this is, God's word is so rich. Would you please turn with me to Titus? Titus. And as you turn with me to Titus, I want you to see Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. It's kind of stuck in between Timothy and Hebrews. So if you kind of turn, uh, you kind of miss it. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Are you there? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, for all people, training us to do what? Renounce Ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Why? Waiting for our blessed hope, and the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who was zealous for good works. That's the church. If you have one of your fingers in Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5, you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. There's a book named after it. Let there not be a hint of sexual immorality. Chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, 2 and 3 says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you. In other words, let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality. That means when you look at me, and look at me walking down the aisle in the store, I got to remind myself of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. I'm a called out person. Called out from the kingdom of darkness. Belong to the kingdom of light. There cannot be even a hint of sexual immorality around me. That applies to all of us, right? Not just to me as an elder or a pastor or the elders here. Every one of you ought to be doing that in the way you live your life. And this is exactly what Paul is saying in... Man, I lost it. This is exactly what Paul is saying in Timothy, right? What is he saying in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15? That you're a household of God, and what's the second thing? Speak to me. That you are the church, come on, you know it, the church of the living God. Let's move on to the next phrase in 1st Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. Call it C. Yeah, that's the third part. A pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. That means we as a body of Christ are the pillar and foundation of the truth. As Paul was writing to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, he was writing to a people in the city of Ephesus known for the temple of Diana, a.k.a. the temple of Artemis. The temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis, was an impressive architecture. It set 127 columns, pillars, supporting the, the roof of the structure. The, the weight of the roof and the structure was taken by these 30 pillars. And the foundation of the structure is important as well, because if the foundation was wrong, these pillars couldn't hang up there, couldn't hold up there with the roof supporting it. So the foundation was important. And with this in mind, Paul is writing to the city of Ephesus. He says, you are the true church of the living God. You are the pillar and buttress of the truth. Not the false gods. But you are the pillar and buttress of the truth. That means we as a church need to be upholding God's truth. We don't just make up truth as we go along. As a church, we do not compromise on the word of God. The, the word of God, God's word is true. Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says, All truth, tasa, all truth, all means all. You don't have to do any Greek studies for that. It's as simple as meaning all means all. All of God's truth is what? God breathed, profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be approved unto what? All good works. This truth is revealed to us by God. John McArthur says, it's not our own. It is from above. You cannot alter it. You cannot modify it. You are to safeguard it. It's a sacred treasure given to us for the glory of God This is truth. Are we upholding God's truth? The truth of God's revelation to the church. Folks, to begin with, we do have to affirm something. And the question that comes is, do we believe in the sufficiency of scriptures? Do we believe in the sufficiency of scriptures? Before you nod your heads, I want you to listen to me. A pastor was recently sharing about the challenges he had been having with his board. The numbers in the church were dwindling. And the deacons wanted to ramp up church attendance by remodeling the church. Because they believed that if we remodel the church, this would draw people to the church. That was one example. Then there are others Who will fire the pastor and hire a pastor who is more charismatic and upbeat. A pastor who will appeal to the culture. Who wants this after all? And then there are others who think, oh, we can just put more programs into the church. And as long as we can get more programs into the church, it will attract more people. Maybe tweak our philosophy of ministry a little bit and it'll appeal the unsaved world. What is your understanding of church growth? Whose responsibility is it to build the church? Let me explain what I'm saying. We can grow this church spiritually. And we can grow the church numerically. Whose responsibility is to grow the church spiritually? The pastors and the elders, right? What should they be doing? Teach God's Word. Edify the people. Equip the people. Everything springs from that basic foundation. By teaching God's Word. How do you grow the church numerically? Well, you can't. Because now you'll be treading into the area that the Lord Jesus is responsible for. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18? Jesus said, I know some of you know that. I will build my church. Not me. Jesus says, this church is Christ's church. I will build my church. Now, you can go into the streets and do evangelism. We should be doing that. It's all about that. We should be doing it. If there are empty seats here, it's because you're not going out and drawing people into the church. Save them. Get them saved and bring them into the church. Don't steal them from other churches. I've told this many times. There are plenty of people out there who need a Savior. Go get them. And if you don't know how to evangelize, we have a whiteboard lesson on evangelism. It's out there online. Go get it. Listen to it. Well, you can go out and evangelize, but even ultimately after you do that, who is the one who saves? Speak to me. You know the answer. God. Not the pastor, not the elders, not your music program, not your special programs, nada. It's Christ and Christ alone. Nothing can bring people into the church but God's word. It is God's word that will bring people into the church. It is God's word that will keep people in the church. Amen to that? Now, you'll be able to understand what I mean by the sufficiency of scriptures. It's not the decor decor in the church. It's not the music in the church. It's not the lighting in the church. It's not the architecture in the church. It's not anything in the church except the truth found in God's word that will draw people into the church, that will keep people into the church, and that will help them to grow spiritually. This is why we do nothing but teach God's word. Nothing but God's word here in the church. We get our leaders together on the second and fourth Tuesday, we teach them through God's word. We get our women together, we teach them through God's word. We don't teach them principles from Madison Avenue. That's not going to help. We get our people together on Wednesday evening, we teach them from God's word. We get our men together on Thursday evening, we teach them from God's word. We have biblical counseling in the church. We do not rely on modern psychology or spiritual experiences or emotions, but we rely on the sufficiency of scriptures to counsel one another. This is why we presented you with a new constitution. Detailed doctrinal explanation statements so elaborately clarified. We didn't come up with our own. It's all from the scriptures. All supported with scriptural references. It's a mini-theology book. It's a mini-catechism for your spiritual growth. Why? Because we uphold God's truth week after week. Now, it's one thing to uphold God's truth week after week, but it's another thing if it doesn't impact our lives. Because we have it all out here, but nothing coming from here, then theology makes no sense. As someone said, you could be a church where you are an inch deep and a mile broad, or you could be a church a mile deep and an inch broad. We don't want to be an inch deep, I mean a mile deep with all theology, but you have nothing else going on. We ought to have God's word put into practice in our daily lives. We should not be merely hearers of God's word but doers of God's word. We ought to live out God's word. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Meaning you ought to have a word-controlled life. How can you have a word-controlled life? How can you have a life where everything is determined by God's word? Let me give you some principles. You can read all about that in scriptures. James chapter 1 verses 19 to 21 talks about it. How you got to receive God's word, but primarily hear God's word. What happens next? Memorize God's word. What happens next? Meditate on God's word. What happens next? Well, study God's word. Be diligent to study God's word. Dig into it. Analyze it. Be a diligent student. And so what? So that you can go and obey God's word. Luke chapter 11, verse 28 reads, Blessed is the man who hears my word and keeps it. Or here's my word, this is it, keeps it. That's the key here. We are to be obedient to God's word. Folks, we are the custodians of the truth of God's word. The world looks at the church and they should see truth proclaimed. Not some fortune cookie preaching. Fortune cookie cookie preaching will not grow Christians. That's why we do expository preaching in this church. It's a simple thing. If you ask me, what's expository preaching? We read the text, we explain the text, and we apply the text, as basic as it can get. Read the text, explain the text, and apply the text. Why? So that you, in turn, could go out and live out the text, text in obedience to God's word. Are we committed as a church to be the pillar and buttress of the truth of God's word. You see how we got to behave in the church of Christ? How we got to conduct ourselves in the church of Christ? We complement Christ. We are the tangible expression of Christ to the world around us. So when the world looks at us, they should see that we are behaving ourselves well in the household of God, that we are a called out community, that means we are living a life of holiness and purity, and that we are the pillar and supporter of the truth of God's word. That means we uphold God's word. We believe in the sufficiency of scriptures. Father, I pray that you would continue to give us grace to be men and women, boys and girls, committed to the bride of Christ, to study God's word, to live out God's word, and to obey God's word. And Lord, at this time, as we prepare ourselves for communion, that you would prepare our hearts and minds to this grace great feast that you prepared for us in jesus name we pray amen